This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. This episode's going out December 21st, 2020. So if you're listening to it in a timely manner, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa. Not really sure about that one. Uh, anyways, it's holiday weeks. Hope you guys are able to take a little bit of time off, enjoy some time with the family. I know we are. Um, but if you're kicking back, relax, you don't want an episode to listen to, I think this is a great one to, to do it for you. So in a quest to keep mixing it up and keeping it fresh for you guys, we decided to go where we haven't gone before. And that's the robotic space. And so Nick Radford, founder and CEO of Houston Megatronics, walked us through you know, his journey from a career at NASA, which I thought was wildly cool, uh, to building some of the most cutting edge robots to better service and access our underwater ecosystem. Now, obviously, there's a ton of applications for this in oil and gas, and that's kind of what we sit around. But we also touch on a lot of other underwater applications uh, that Nick walked us through, particularly some that he does with the Department of Defense, which we can't get into too deep, a little bit classified. If he has to tell you, he has to kill you. So anyways, we had a lot of fun recording this one. Uh, so hope you guys enjoy it. As always, let's take a little bit of time, take two minutes to run through our TPH Energy Insight of the Week. So this week, I'm sure as a lot of you guys have seen, uh, something went viral all over the internet on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Adam Anderson, CEO of Innovex Downhole Solution, wanted to buy his Chris, buy his employees a Christmas present. So he wanted to buy 400 jackets from you know, a really popular brand, the North Face. But he was rejected, not necessarily from North Face, so let's just clarify that. He was rejected through, I guess, the reseller or distributor of that. And reason being is that they said that because it wasn't consistent with its brand standards, it's a long story short, they said, because you're an oil and gas company, we're not going to put your logo on the North Face jackets, right? So I, I just find it, it, and they also said that they see oil and gas in the same light. I'm looking at this really quickly as they do tobacco, alcohol, and porn. I mean, have and you been oil on, and gas. if you've been on the oil field, I mean, it's a pretty rough place. It's not far off from... <laughs> Yeah, you know, we were talking about it a lot on Twitter and it's funny, Matt Gallagher, CEO of Parsley chimed in and said that they were rejected an order on some jackets or vests from Patagonia a couple of years ago. And he actually cried a pretty funny joke. He said it was his land department that ordered them, but still that's no reason to reject them. <laughs> so, you know, you're seeing this advocacy from different corporate entities and brands and you know, a lot of us in oil and gas see the hypocrisy in it that one, the jackets are literally made out of petroleum based fabrics and petroleum is a crucial part of the supply chain and logistics in making those products. So it's unfortunate to see. Um, there is a guy on LinkedIn, I think they this oil connector, something like that. They made a uh, North Frack patch. Oh yeah, yeah. I saw that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Said if you want to cover up all of your North Face yeah. logos, here's a So it was like patch. a play off of the North yeah. Face, except it had a drilling rig, drilling a horizontal on a production well um, that was, or a pump jack that was producing a horizontal well. So 
I think the industry needs voices from individuals putting out content and showing that this industry has good intentions and there's a lot of smart people and, you know, we've always had an imaging problem. And so I think everyone just needs to do their part in telling their story and showing everyone that the industry is good and it's good for humanity. And we're doing a lot of things that are making it cleaner and sustainable and, you know, I don't know, maybe boycott North Face, I guess. Is that what you do? I don't know. I've never worn North Face stuff. I think more than anything. I'm wearing a Columbia jacket right now. They make good clothing. I'm not going to like dog them for that. I think I actually actually have some North Face stuff. I'm wearing a Columbia jacket right now. I don't know Columbia stance. They're competitors. Maybe Columbia is personal, I guess. Columbia stuff. I think more importantly, it's just like like Colin said, it's it's kind of up to us. And as an industry, we've really sucked at you know, talking about the benefits of, uh, you know, having abundant hydrocarbons. We actually recently just did a podcast with, um, Kali Kavnis from Crusoe Energy Systems that'll be dropping here soon. And, and we went really, really deep down that rabbit hole. And, you know, if you ever go to any third world countries, you realize that they don't have that abundance of, of hydrocarbons. And it's very, very, uh, it's easy to see, you know, like he says in that, in that episode, it's not about, you know, the good quality of life. It's not being able to get a, a cup of Starbucks. It's like, can I get a bowl of rice today? You know, and, and all the, the wonderful things that, um, it really, affords us in life. And so we have to do a better job of educating the public. Um, you know, this, the biggest companies have not stepped up to do so. And so it is really up to us, the people, uh, to, to put out these kinds of content. So do your part, pick up your phone, start writing stuff on Twitter, start writing stuff on LinkedIn. Uh, we got to get the word out. Uh, so without further ado, let's go ahead and get right into the episode. What's up guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Willing Guest Stars podcast. I'm excited about this. This is an entirely new category for us to even be talking about. We've never done anything really offshore necessarily. We haven't really done anything in the robotics space. Yeah, we've had seems we've had some space age. We've had some drones, but nothing really this cool. And this has been a long yeah, one. Yeah, but just aerial drones. Yeah, aerial drones. Drones can go underwater. <laughs> exactly. So we got Houston Megatronics. We got Nick Radford. Nick, um, I've heard a lot about you, man. My, I'm good friends with Diana Grower over at Technique. She speaks oh, the world shit. of you guys. And then I've heard about you from Tudor Pricker and Holt. So... Man, tell us what Houston Megatronics is real quick. Had a 40,000 foot view, and then we're going to dive into the dirty details. Yeah, I love it. Uh, wow. So HMI story is 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 pretty, it's pretty big. Um, for about seven years now. I can't believe it's been seven years. I had to think, I had to pause and think about when we started the company. But uh, yeah, after, after my 14 year career at NASA in space flight robotics, and I was real fortunate, um, just real fortunate to lead some of the flagship efforts that NASA uh, had their hands in at the time, um, building robots for other planets, Moon and Mars and Space Station. And there were people that would always come to the lab and they were like, hey, you ever thought about, you ever thought about uh, taking this technology underwater? And at the time, you kind of like, oh, man, I work for NASA. What are you, what are you talking about, man? This is, uh, <laughs> this, we can see, you know, look at this shit. It's, this is cool, right? But, uh, but yeah, man, the more I looked into it, it was like, wow, there's, there's okay, let's, let's learn more about this. And there's a whole world. I mean, just the offshore industry in general, but the cities that exist underwater, I became fascinated by. And learning about how those things are maintained and built and, and, and inspected and, and, and repaired. It just became fascinated by the whole industry. 
And then I started kind of putting two and two together and realized that everything that I had been working on at NASA was directly, uh, was just directly applicable to the underwater world. And then, then it became an obsession because I was like, you know, <laughs> this peg goes in this hole. I can do this. <laughs> and, and, uh, how that led to an underwater transformer submarine, I have no idea, but, uh, but no, seriously, it, uh, it, it just, it became literally an obsession about applying everything I had learned in a decade and a half of spaceflight robotics research to completely altering how people do work offshore in the subsea world in a variety of industries, not just oil and gas, but port, harbors, security, um, offshore wind, data centers, telecommunications, aquaculture. There's a tremendous amount of verticals in this industry. It's about a $30 billion total addressable market, 5 million hours every year of robots working underwater. And I'm here to, to alter the landscape on how that's done. So I've seen some pictures. I've seen some pictures of your technology and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, I come from the offshore world. I worked offshore on rigs. And so, you know, I always see ROVs and really familiar with how those work. Do you guys replace those operations of what a traditional ROV does on a rig? Can Houston Megatronics replace that with y'all's robotics? Absolutely. And it will be done over time as we capture more and more of the market. And it will be it, what we do will be adopted very purposefully as we go through our go-to-market strategy. But I'm of the very strong opinion that the that the technologies we're working on, and specifically the 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 artificial intelligence, the deep machine learning style uh, controls and 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 imagery compression on how our users operate the robot, that these these fundamental things which we are second to none in. Um, is going to take over this landscape. And, and there's a lot of great companies in this, in this community right now, but they're all competitors, right? And, and uh, technologies like bringing a gun to a knife fight, right? It levels the playing field very quickly. Uh, the, the world, is, <laughs> the world is, is, is fraught with uh, the story of the small startup taking down the incumbent, right? And, and it's, it's as inevitable as, as rain, right? It's just going to happen. Who are the incumbents in this space? Because I'm, well, I'm completely ignorant to the entire underwater world. Well, there's a lot of uh, traditional people in this space um, that have been here for a long time and are excellent at what they do. Uh, they've established really amazing businesses. And I tell people sometime, uh, you know, even though we view ourselves as competition, uh, in effect, that there are oftentimes we're kind of, I would call it cooperation, because there's a part of this technology that we all need to mature together, because the industry needs to adopt it. And then it's going to be whose tech is better than whose tech. And I believe I can win in that world. But, uh, but, at, but at some point, there's a stage where uh, we're all kind of working together to get the field to move, and then we'll fight it out, right? And we're sort of in that first stage right now where, where we're, we're in this cooperation stage, where we're cooperatively moving the industry forward 
Uh, oil and gas in particular is very slow, right? Very slow to adopt new tech, very scared of it. Uh, the value prop has got to be extremely strong, multidimensional. It has to have as much human safety elements, as much as cost, as much as environmental, as much as three other factors at the same time. Um, they don't work just on cost. And so you've got to bring the whole thing with you as you're putting something new in the oil and gas industry. So that long-winded point is to, is to say that in the interim, it's going to take a coalition of the willing uh, to help bring a lot of this tech to market. And then uh, the chips are going to fall where they may, and some people will survive and other people won't. Um, but to get back to your question, Jake, um, uh, you know, market leaders are Oceaneering, uh, Subsea 7, Fugro, Doff, uh, um, you've got Saipam. Um, you've got small players like Bibi Offshore. You've got other people like uh, Ravop and Ravco. Um, there's, there's a, there's a, it's stratified by billion-dollar companies all the way down to people that own 10 ROVs, Delta Sub-C, TMT. Um, there's lots of players in this industry. Um, we're, we're, we're a new kid on the block, which, which is to say that uh, we have been heads down developing a lot of tech uh, for a while, uh, partnered greatly in the defense world. We do a lot of things in, in that space. And, uh, it's really cool for us because we get to, we get to leverage a lot of that IP development and then help infuse that, uh, commercially as we're allowed to use parts of what we develop for the government. So, um, but like I said, a lot of great companies in this space, they, they just, um, they become their incumbents over time, right? Well, you know, yeah, exactly. uh, I've been trying, I was trying to think of a really nice way to say anything. I, I mean, it's, this is it's obviously going to be, you know, it's going to be sent out places, but it's the circle um, of life, right? And it's the ebb and flows yeah, of business. And, what I would say politically, to, to, well, not politically, but to say something um, as judiciously as I can, it's very hard for a big corporation to disrupt themselves. And it's oftentimes very difficult to tear down what, what your shareholders want you to do in terms of making money to sacrifice the short term to build up something bigger later. And so corporate innovation is very hard because they oftentimes cannot disrupt themselves and uh, enter the startup. And the startup who is not encumbered by the usual suspects like shareholders and, 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 other, and other folks and heavy-handed bureaucracy and heavy-handed management that stifles this internal innovation, innovation um, we're much freer, uh, which means we make some mistakes. We spend money on things we shouldn't spend money on, um, but we also are free to, to come up with very creative implementations, which over time, when someone goes, oh, that'll never work, Right. Well, we, we put out something. Half the industry goes, they're idiots. Uh, the other the other half of the industry says that'll never work. But there's a really small slice left over who goes, oh, shit. Right. And they're just hoping they're just hoping that we just fail and run out of money and all this kind of stuff because they go, yep, if that if that actually comes to pass, that's going to be a big deal. All right. So you just touched on, uh, you know, working with defense. And I know that you guys have all these different sectors that you're focusing on, you know, whether it's oil and gas or defense. I know you all have done some work with DARPA and obviously you came from NASA. So tell us a little bit about that and your experiences there. Yeah, uh, it's it's been just it's been incredible. You know, so so thematically, what we are doing at, at Houston Mechatronics is 
we believe that it does not require heavy topside infrastructure in order to do work underwater. What does that mean? So <laughs> let's say let's say let's say you want to fix something underwater. Right now, you have to take a boat, a very large boat, staffed with a hundred people. These ROV vessels, and you know they're they're a hundred meters long. They cost a hundred thousand dollars a day. They take three hundred thousand dollars just to move them out of port and mobilize them. They have an amazing amount of cost associated with it. You got to put, like I said, you got to put people on it. They got to have spaghetti to eat. It'll get delayed when it's headed somewhere because of weather. Um, and then if you want to do something underwater, you drop this dishwasher refrigerator looking thing called an ROV off the side of the ship on this really large umbilical because no one has the technology yet where I can command that robot through the data rates that sending data in the ocean uh, allows me to, which is very slow. Think like dial-up internet 1987, right? Um, none of you kids could watch. <laughs> Never mind. Um, <laughs> you couldn't watch the movies, quote unquote, that you do currently over dial-up modems, right? So that's kind of like the amount of networking data rate that we have underwater if you don't use an umbilical. Uh, you use acoustic transmissions instead of fiber optic. So, but but the company, a company that wants to do work underwater, they got to drop an ROV off the side of their boat with a fiber optic umbilical and a power power tether. One, it's extremely expensive. I mean, these umbilicals are millions of dollars by themselves. Two, they get tangled up a bunch, and and the ship starts to have to manage where this umbilical is, and it's just a ton of non-value added time. So imagine something that costs you one hundred thousand dollars a day to operate, having to not get the extension cord caught up in whatever you're doing underwater, right? It's kind of a pain in the butt. And so we just decided to remove that umbilical. If you don't have the umbilical, you don't, you're not necessarily quote unquote tied to a ship anymore. If you're not tied to a ship anymore. You don't have, you don't have the expense of running the ship and the umbilical, but it takes, it takes, a serious amount of technology development in order to pull that off, which is what we have focused on: the artificial intelligence, the ACOMS communication, how I how I compress the the 3D environmental world and then reconstruct that to an operator using machine learning techniques. Because we do all of our operations on shore, right? We don't have somebody on the boat running joysticks through uh, HD video on a monitor to command your robot. We command that. Uh, over a, an acoustic network where the operator's onshore. And so since we don't have the boat or the umbilical, we have a seriously, drastically lower price point that we offer the same service. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack how here. Do you, so when you have, I know, how do you deploy like, those? I was thinking about all this and I'm just like, wow. <laughs> well, oh. three hours later, right? Three hours later, we're going to meet the substance of this thing and then we're going to have to get coffee and pizza butter <laughs> and all that stuff. I got to go home. I mean, my- We're going to have to get some uh, catering in here, man. Yeah, so, you know, with the traditional ROVs, like you said, you have these huge umbilical cores that supply the power and the lines, the fiber optics for data transmission. You keep mentioning the acoustic network, and this is what you guys are leveraging. How does that actually work? And how are you able to operate this thing from onshore instead of on a boat above the vehicle? It turns out that a lot of what we studied at NASA was how humans control robots. 
And since we could never tie an umbilical to a robot and launch it from the earth um, and have it land on the moon with an extension cord, we had to devise ways to interact with the robot, uh, having, having the human tell the robot what to do. Because these, listen, I don't care who you are. This autonomy shit, it ain't coming anytime soon. All right. This full autonomy stuff, it's way out there. So in, how far I, out? Oh, God. It, just, it, depends <laughs> on what, it depends on what you're talking about in what industry, because there's a lot of autonomous agents that 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 operate everywhere. I mean, shoot, the financial community, they deal with a lot of autonomous, you know, AI style software and what they do. But how far are we away from you being able to jump in your car? And, and it just drives you to wherever you're headed and through a congested urban environment uh, in, in uh, you know, over, over four or five hours worth of, of long duration autonomy, 10 years, mm-hmm. 10 years. Um, you hear that, Elon? We are every bit of, <laughs> no, absolutely. 10 years. I've been in this for a long time. And, and it's a minimal, minimal 10 years away from any practical, man, I got, I got a Tesla, you know, I, I love to get on beltway and punch in autopilot and, and sit back and check some text messages. But even in the most controlled driving conditions, that thing fucks up like 20 times on my drive to work over the course of, of 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's got a long way to go. And there's different levels of autonomy, right? People would call the pull, the full sentient autonomy that can take you somewhere called that level five autonomy, right? Yeah. To where, to where a normal human driving the car might be level zero autonomy. Well, some humans would probably be level negative one autonomy. <laughs> but, but there's, there's most the, Houston you know, drivers, negative, <laughs> negative one. <laughs> yeah, ne- most Houston drivers are negative one autonomy for sure. Um, but you know, that, that doesn't mean we might not have some cool co-piloting, some, some safety features that might break the car before you realize you're about to rear end somebody, right? You see those now. Mm -hmm. And so that same analogy is what we are promoting in the subsea world. We are able to connect an operator to the functioning of this robot in a very austere communication environment. So the robot has some level of autonomy. It understands uh, some of the real-time action required in a relatively slow, dynamic environment, like being underwater. Um, but it still needs to be told by the human what to do. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen robot demos, but sometimes they can be really, really friggin' boring. And oftentimes the robot is staring at a door handle, wondering if it's a butterfly or a door <laughs> handle, right? And, and so what we do is we cheat. We just tell the robot that the door handle is not a butterfly, it's a door handle. And so we have this sort of teleperception thing with the robot. And so we cheat and we tell the robot, hey, that's a door handle. And he goes, oh, that's a door handle. I know what to do with a door handle. I have these lists of activities I can perform on door handles. And so this, this, this marriage between, this multi-agent marriage between a robot and the human that style of operation can work when your communication bandwidth is very low. So the lower your communication bandwidth, the smarter the robot needs to be, but it doesn't need to be infinitely smart. It doesn't need to approach human level reasoning and understanding. But since it's not very smart in that respect, you've got to be able to transmit some information back to a human. 
So what we have mastered is being able to image the world in a multispectral way. We fuse that imagery together. We compress it using our own proprietary machine learning algorithms. We then compress it to the size sufficient that we can transmit it over dial-up networking circa 1987. And then it's reconstructed at the UI. And then sort of that, that information is kind of filled in uh, using some other techniques. And the human, and this is what's amazing about humans, we are really good at discerning compressed and lossy information. You'd be surprised on how pixelated an image can be or, or how corrupted an image can be, and you can still see what's there. So you have an amazing, this, this water-cooled uh, shoulder-mounted supercomputer that we all walk, walk around with is really excellent at image processing. So you combine what robots are good at doing, which is that repetitive task automation and handling some real-time action with the perception horsepower of a human, and you smash the two together, the human sends the robot commands, the, the robots act, but the robot doesn't, is not responsible for the real decision-making capability of, of the abstracted, what do I do next? The human takes care of that. But the robot knows, oh, I know how to turn that valve. I know how to insert this device. I've been trained on that. The human, the human double clicked on where I should put my, my probe at. So now I'm going to do that, right? So it's this marriage over low bandwidths that the robot does something and the human tells the robot what to do. Now, the, the sound of speed through water, right? 1,500 meters per second. Uh, depending on how far away the robot is, there's a latency of communication of, of many seconds. So the robot has to handle some of that real-time dynamics, like I mentioned earlier, of, of uncertainty. Like um, a fish went in the way, stop and wait for the fish to go by, right? I mean, there's, there's things like that, that that the robot will handle. So how do you guys, when you deploy it, you know, when you deploy a traditional ROV, like you said, you have to take out this big ship with a huge crew. When you guys deploy your robot, what do you actually need to deploy it? You just like Iron Man suited out there? <laughs> yeah, we'll drop, we drop it off an autonomous helicopter. Right? <laughs> we just try to like, you know, the problem's not twice as hard. It's stupid squared at this point. Um, so... Uh, it's a pretty large industry, you know, about $30 billion total addressable market. And what I realized is there are several billion of that, call it $3 billion within 50 kilometers of shore. So what we focused on is shore launched operations and wind farms are perfect for this. That's why our go-to-market strategy is wind farms, ports, and, and, and offshore data centers, because those are usually close to shore. So take a, take a wind farm, for example. Maybe at wind farms within 10 kilometers of shore, you can launch the robot, shoot, kick it off the back of a jet ski, right? You have, uh, you don't have to have engineering labor staff um, put the robot in the, in the water. So you have, you can have very affordable uh, folks on the ground, launch the robot. It's then controlled. <laughs> You get Boudreaux with his, his fan boat with a <laughs> right. robot in tow. Exactly, exactly. So you, uh, you have very affordable launch and recovery operations. You are then only transiting, you know, tens of kilometers both directions to do all of the, uh, the actions required on a wind farm. And then you come back and you did it at a price point completely inconceivable uh, 10 years ago because you did it without the presence of a topside surface expression like a boat. 
does this thing is it compact and does it like actually transform i, I can't i think i saw a video on it or does it stay in a static position the entire time yeah the uh the robot is 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 very active it has it has um it has a, it has a uh, an active morphological element to it so it, it is well, who are we kidding? It plays the, it actually plays the transformer sound anytime. <laughs> and, and the whales love it, but um, it, it goes from this hydrodynamically efficient state in its AUV form. And then it actively reconfigures itself for station keeping and its work platform. So it unveils two uh, electric work class manipulators, and then it, and then it deploys new thrusters and it reconfigures its buoyancy so that it can hover and do work underwater. But if it needs to go somewhere else, like say 10 more kilometers somewhere else, it can, it can fold back up, transform back into an AUV and swim off. And right now there's no other vehicle that has the best of both worlds. It can operate as an AUV when it needs to, and it can operate as an ROV when it needs to. How many models of robots do you guys currently have? Uh, we have three actually. So, okay, we have so what's, our, what's the one you just described? Uh, well, that's, that's all of them. All, the, all of them have that the, the same basic tenet of, of reconfiguring the buoyant elements so that it can create more stability while it's performing manipulation activities. And then it can fold back up into a hydrodynamically efficient configuration and then transit somewhere else. So all of our robots that go in the ocean follow that same logic. Um, now we have, since we do work with the defense department, um, like I mentioned earlier, and, and, and to underscore that, if you tell somebody that you can do work underwater without the presence of a topside surface expression, there's a lot more interested parties besides oil and gas and wind farms, right? <laughs> so, so Uncle sure. Sam shows up in camouflage. He goes, thanks, son. I'll take it later. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, we've been working with, with, uh, I would say entities within the DOD ecosystem that is interested in being able to do that. And so we have a variant for the boys. Uh, you know, my company runs these as a service too. That's part of our business model, but the defense side, the people that run the service are usually wearing camouflage. So we, we work with them in other capacities. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's their defense variant, and then we have two other commercial variants, depending on how deep and how far it's going. I'm glad you brought up the uh, business model because I actually want to segue into that and talk about the business side of things a little bit. So I'm always fascinated by technologies like this. You know, when people think startups, they're always you know looking at digital technologies and software, mm -hmm. and it's a you know lower barrier Dude, to entry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know what this, this podcast is rated, but I am so sick and tired of the only like real innovation in this world happening around the app ecosystem. Yeah. In order to do some shit in this plan on this planet, we're gonna have to build some shit. Yeah. And I'm on the build the shit side. Yeah, I've been going on rants lately this year. You know, it's like how many new email clients do we need? That's like what's innovative coming out of Silicon Valley. I'm like, fuck, we don't no, need no. superhuman and how we threw $500 million at a dog walking app. Yeah, that's what you <laughs> exactly. So, but you know, talking about, and it went <laughs> they all do. <laughs> so, but you know, seven years ago, you started this company and we have a lot of aspiring uh, founders that listen to our show. And, you know, I've had a lot reach out. They're like, you know, especially if they're an oil and gas, like, Hey, I've got this idea for a tool down hole. How do I go about, you know, getting the resources to develop oh, it? So that makes me nervous. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, tell us a little bit about when you got this idea, how you went about getting funding for it. You know, Jake looked you guys up on Crunchbase. Um, I can't remember how much you guys have raised up to this point, but, you know, tell us a little bit about that process of actually getting a product developed and getting it funded to take it to the market, make it a commercial product. Yeah, I'm, I'm Crunchbase probably a little outdated, but we've raised uh, about $27.5 million to date. And uh, we're going through a another raise right now between 30 and 40 million. So turns out uh, building robots for the ocean is expensive. Um, they solve really expensive problems, um, but it is pretty expensive. So, you know, business model wise, just to start on this one. Um, yeah, I've been in the robotics industry for a long time and I've had the opportunity, especially when I was at NASA, to become uh everything from casual to, to very serious onlooker uh, of an onlooker of, of some excellent robotics companies and not so excellent robotics companies. And one thing I saw was very true. The quickest way to go out of business as a robotics company is sell robots. And so I knew immediately that I did not want to be in the selling the robot mode because it just seemed a dead end at some point, right? You sell off all that entire value to somebody. Now people, and, and another thing is people, they don't really want robots. They just want, what, they want what robots do. So I decided to be a robotics company that provides the do part of what robots do. I, I, I am a, I'm a subsea services company. I just happen to use a robot in order to accomplish 99% of the tasks that I do underwater. So that's the way I've chosen to look at it. Um, there are some very successful companies like iRobot out there. They sell vacuum cleaners. They don't come into your home and, and, and perform a vacuum service using robots. They, they, they happily have a consumer-facing product where they sell, they sell vacuum cleaners to, to, to people. Um, I just felt the worldwide population of underwater robots was not such that I could sell millions of them. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I th said, you know what? The service that this robot performs, both in, both in data gathering and actual physical interaction with the underwater world, is extremely valuable, and people will pay me handsomely to, to perform it. And what I, what I found is that I solved the cost problem of doing work offshore using robotics. Yeah, that's really interesting when you, you know, really kind of, I, I like the thinking that you had in how people were approaching the robotics world and you knew that, you know, you're not going to sell millions of these units. And so how do you, how do you like really look at Houston Megatronics moving forward? You know, obviously you guys have, you know, this huge blue ocean that literally a blue ocean that you get to expand into, right. With all of these um, expanding verticals, and I'm sure there's a lot of opportunity, as you've mentioned, you know, your go to market strategy sounded pretty sound, um, you know, going after wind farms and data centers that were right off the coast. You know, do you guys do you think over the next five years, 10 years, that's what you stay focused on? Or do you try um, going into or wedging into other verticals uh, pretty soon after that? Well, the the market looks like this. There's kind of two major stratifications. There's the shallow water part of the market and there's the deep water part of the market. And in order not to do too much, we had to say, 
let's prove out everything this company's trying to be in 500 meters of water or less. We can manage our operations, our cost, our, our prototype iterations, our product reworks. We can manage it much better if we're not trying to solve a problem where the robot needs to spend the majority of its life two miles under the ocean. So we, we looked at that industry and then couple that with how you know, what, what parts of that industry are close to shore. And because, you know, like I said, we started from zero. You know, I, I started this company and brought with me about 25 people from NASA that were crazy enough to want to go off and, and do something like this. And we knew very little about ocean robotics. Uh, you know, we, we have, uh, we bought, we started buying books, right? I mean, we, we literally were like, wow, okay. Uh, what's this buoyancy thing everyone keeps talking about? You know, on on that, I mean, from like nothing. So you, so you obviously you had your experience from NASA, right? And a ton of robotics experience. The team from NASA, but like, what was was there like a, a, a piece of data that you saw or a defining moment that you were like, oh shit, like I'm going to go all in on underwater robotics, or was it like, I just had this experience. I think this is interesting. We're going to go figure it out. We're going to go find a problem to solve. You know, it's like how, how does a market move, right? A market moves on three major forces. It moves on an economic force, a technological force, and a social force. And in the offshore world, I saw the confluence of those three strong market indicators um, swirling together. People want to do work underwater in a much more environmentally responsible way. The present solutions involve uh, a boat that spews out 70 metric tons of CO2 um, each day that uses hydraulic fluids for all of its robots, that if you spill even a teaspoon of it, it's a recordable incident. And so there's a lot, there was a lot of social pressure to, to look for greener ways of doing things, which meant a completely new robot morphology and a completely different uh, way of, of deployment. You know, how do you use a 70 metric ton CO2 footprint less? Economically, the offshore industry cannot support the price points, or rather the price of oil does not support the price points that, that boats need to break even right now. It's very difficult for, for the offshore community and the services world to operate. You should see how many vessel companies went out of business over the last couple of years, a lot of them. So, so we already know that's true, that, that economically you have to find something different. And technologically, there was a big tipping point in edge computing. Um, you can pack in so much computational horsepower to do the sophisticated things that you need to do in perception and autonomy in order to actually achieve the underwater action, that the three of those things happen to combine beautifully so that solutions that would fundamentally change how work is done in the ocean, especially underwater, were, came to fruition. And, and I just happened to have the background where we were applying a lot of the same technological tenets in order to work on a very similar problem working uh, on another planet, that being on the bottom of the ocean floor is like another planet. It's, it feels that far away and it feels that disconnected. And so to me, it was just this natural marriage. And, and I, I think in the last six years, we've proven some NASA folks can, have learned to keep some robot, some water out of robots. 
And, and more importantly, um, we are much bigger than that now. We have augmented the company with industry expertise. I've hired lots of people from Oceaneering right now, right? Um, we have augmented our staff with the necessary uh, domain expertise that has really given this company uh, life. How many people are you guys up to now? Uh, we're about 75 people. So, oh, wow. you know, in, in, in uh, you know, uh, companies can start with good ideas and great ideas and fun ideas. But if you don't surround that idea with the people that it takes to put that into play with the right people from the right industry, uh, it doesn't matter. Right. It's 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 dead on arrival. So it's not just an idea. It's actually the execution of that idea. And if you and people should focus more on the execution than having the idea. I think there's a lot of romanticism having and having that eureka moment. That's that's nothing. That's none of it. What you do in order to accomplish it is everything. Absolutely. And you talk about, you know, when you guys started the company, you were able to convince 25 people that were crazy enough to jump ship and come work with you from NASA. Do you guys still work closely with NASA? Because we've seen some of the pictures of y'all's robot in the huge pools. And Jake and I assumed that that, that was NASA's pools. Is that correct? Yeah, that was that's NASA's neutral buoyancy lab. Uh, I guess what I would say about my relationship with NASA is if you hire 25 people away from NASA, you're not well liked anymore. <laughs> so, um, I don't keep a really long, uh, you know, I don't get Christmas cards and shit like that from those guys. <laughs> right? so, you know, um, so there's that part. And, and, and no, I don't have any special connection into NASA to use the pool. I just paid them. Oh, okay. It's pretty, pretty easy what doors you can open just by writing. Yeah. Check. If you just pay them, right. You can get wherever you want to go. Exactly. <laughs> cool. You know, I've had people come to me and go, man, how did you, how did you like, how did you get to use NASA's pool, bro? And I was like, just paid them. Yeah. <laughs> just called them, set up an appointment, <laughs> wired over some money. Mm -hmm. All right, man. So before we end this podcast real quick, you know, I always like to kind of get inside the founder's mind and see where you guys are going over the next, you know, one to two years, what your goals are. Um, you know, what are you really looking to do with Houston Megatronics over the next 18 months? I'm thinking of pivoting into hummus. I think it's going to be pretty good. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, electric vehicles is the move right now. You got you to gotta get yeah, spec'd. Or, or EVs, you know, it's, it's going to be a race between EVs and hummus. I haven't decided which. Every time I go to Kroger, there's like another flavor of hummus. I'm just like, what the fuck? What am I missing? <laughs> um, direct, to, direct to consumer brands in, in the food industry. Yeah, that's where it's at. <laughs> you should probably start this podcast with this segment because no one's going to wade through the end of it. You know, wade through this to get to the end of it. And, uh, <laughs> um, the, the big stock tip I have is hummus. The, uh, so the next two years for us is going to be very international. We're opening up an office in Singapore. We're opening up an office in the UK. Um, we are quickly turning into a global enterprise. It turns out that our first our first customers are not in the Gulf of Mexico. Who knew? And uh, so I've got to kind of go to where people are paying me to be. And all of that's in the North Sea and, and Asia Pacific region. Awesome. Global so domination. Are, that's what's next on the roadmap. Yeah, exactly. 100%. That's, where, that's what's on tap for us. Um, awesome. So it's... As I say, if someone's listening to our podcast, you know, we have, um, I, I know a guy right off the top of my head that listens to every single episode and he's a, a subsea engineer. He's going to geek out over this one, I'm sure. Oh, nice. Um, so if someone's listening and they're interested in finding out more about Megatronics, how do they get a hold of you guys? Uh, what's the website? Um, can they find yeah. you guys on LinkedIn? Where at? 
Yeah. <clears throat> so www.houstonmechatronics.com. So that's that's obviously where we're at. You can just Google Houston Mechatronics. Um, you know, we're we're hiring about 45 people over the next six months. So we've booked enough revenue next year that we're basically hiring. Uh, we're, we'll have we're hiring about 60 percent more people. So um, companies going through a pretty large growth period right now. Are these going to be based and in Houston or internationally as you guys expand? Internationally. Yeah, we'll have about 10 people in Singapore, about 10 people in the UK. And uh, we'll have because we do all of our manufacturing in Houston. You know, and I, I think Houston does not get enough recognition for being a pretty badass town. Absolutely. Um, you know, people like to bitch about it a lot. And I, I failed to ever see the reasoning why they say, oh, my God, it's so hot. And I'm like, yes, it's hot for like <laughs> a couple months <laughs> for, for like August and September, you bozo. And and from November to, I don't know, May, it's like Southern fucking California. So um, what is your problem? Now, it doesn't have mountains and stuff like that, but. Um, you can fly there okay. though. You can go visit mountains. Yeah. Dude, I went hiking <laughs> with my daughter. Like, I, we flew to Colorado, went hiking and flew home. And I was like, that was my mountain fix. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. I was actually, I was talking to a reporter for Bloomberg yesterday because he's writing a piece on how Houston's one of the most underrated cities out there. And, uh, yeah, 1000%. Yeah. And so but, but at some point we don't want to tell anybody about it because it doesn't need to turn into the people's Republic of California. <laughs> yeah, we'll start becoming Austin pretty quick. Right. Sorry to <laughs> sorry to our awesome listeners. Don't didn't mean to take a dig at yeah, you guys. So Nick, appreciate you coming on the show, man. Uh, really excited to talk about the stories. We've heard a lot about it, and man, I want to come see it sometime in person. So oh, when you, you guys, guys slow a, down, standing invitation to uh, brave the COVID uh, atmosphere and come on down. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, we'll be back in the pool here very shortly, and and we got a lot of open water testing coming up. So I will, I'd love to get you guys on site so you can, you know, you look like y'all from Missouri. So you believe it when you see it, I'm sure. So <laughs> I need to- you, you pinned us down correctly. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Nick, we appreciate you coming on, man. If you want to reach out to uh, Nick Houston Electronics, you can find them online. We'll uh, link their website in the show notes. If you enjoy this episode, make sure that you leave us a five-star review and we'll catch you on the next episode.